Have you ever been to a proper music festival? If you haven't yet, it's not too late. Over the past couple of decades, we've seen an absolute explosion in the UK festival culture. As an avid festival lover and someone who's spent most of their 20s and 30s seeking out the best party that the UK has to offer, I have to say there is one festival that just kept me going back. And that is the Shambhala Music Festival. This is a place where dreams come true. A place of freedom, celebration, love, chaos and magic. It is also not just a party. Shambhala is leading the way in the UK events industry. Guided by a desire to do well by all species for the next seven generations to come, Shambhala is breaking the mould and inspiring their punters to do their part in inspiring a brighter future. To find out all about it, I met up with Chris Johnson, one of the festival's co-founders, where he shared with me stories not only of the festival's growth, but also his personal journey of growth, including the important role of his mentors and the role of ceremony in building meaning and connection. From the bottom of my heart, welcome Chris Johnson to The New Navigators. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jamie. Tell me about the journey that you've been on to get to where you are now with the festival, because I know it's been a huge adventure and probably challenge to turn the festival into what it is today. Well, I mean, we were at college, a whole bunch of us, um, having had a connection to African music, a few of us had spent some time in Africa. And we found ourselves kind of involved in a, a music night at college. Um, and it was fun. So somewhere towards the end of college, we found ourselves in a field with a bunch of friends and a farmer's trailer with a tarp over it and a couple of portaloos. And that was fun too. So so we carried on. Each year we carried on. And at some point, there was a thousand of us in a field. And kind of we started realising that we had to sort of be a bit more organised and call it something. And and at some point we realised we actually had to sort of take it seriously and <laughs> yeah. get licences and, and be a bit more proper. But it was a party, basically. Oh, it was just a bunch of mates having a good time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it was never, there was never a master plan. We, um, we just kept doing it. And who's we? There are five of us. I'm one of five. And uh, we've all been involved more or less since the very early days. And we actually had a record shop for a few years and uh, that kind of helped keep the scene together after college uh, while the festival was kind of forming and that was that was a key part of it really kind of just being being part of a scene and being you know holding a focus for a whole sort of diaspora of people that had either spent time at college or friends from different cities and yeah it was a bad time to start a record shop though the beginning of the digital revolution yeah, we uh, we, tr- we tried everything to keep keep it going. I think the the diversification drive when when the record sales wasn't going well sort of led to even sort of distributing organic veg. Being a, you know we were ten years ahead on the organic veg box scheme, but veg and records don't mix. I was I was banned in the end, <laughs> <laughs> rotting veg <laughs> under the counter. <laughs> no, it doesn't seem but, like a um, good mix. But yeah, so we, we we sort of split on the record shop. The other guys kept it going for years and years. Um, it was a real good focus for for the scene there. And I split to Cornwall and ended up in Bristol and met Sid and 
and uh, Ollie was involved in the record shop. So the five of us sort of been sharing this journey for for most of Shambhala's history. And mm. and as I say, it kind of there was there wasn't really well the first eight years or so wasn't really a plan. We just kind of went from one year to the next. And mm. there was a point definitely when we realised that we had something and and we needed to steward it and look after it and care for it and take it seriously. And yeah. Mm. When was that? How many how many years did it? take to transition from being a party into being what most people who might be listening might remember or know of of Shambhala Music Festival Mm. when did it turn into a a sort of official thing when you had you know tickets and wristbands and all that sort of stuff I might actually get the year year wrong but I guess we had sort of two or three years since 1999 maybe that we were kind of just doing parties and being in a field and maybe around 2001 or two it sort of we ended up as a whole a whole scene in a field uh i mean one of my ni- one of my favorite memories is is that actually pre-tickets uh, instead of a wristband or a ticket we actually gave everyone a sort of clay pendant <laughs> that, was, that was that was our idea of security to check whether people should be there or not wow handmade clay pendant handmade uh, which is really sweet. Wow, whose job was it to make the clay pendants? Well, we actually had a had an artist do that who who had also provided the um, a tile she'd made, which was the logo for the first sort of couple of years that we were wow. taking it seriously. That's great. And um, yeah, but I think there was there was a kind of reckoning in two thousand and five when when we were down in uh, the southwest in Plymouth near Plym- near Plymouth, and thousands and thousands of people turn up. I mean. I consider unwanted, it, unexpected. Yeah, well, the festival had got to say it was maybe sort of four thousand, five thousand people, right? Or maybe maybe it was two and a half thousand, and but either way, whatever the numbers were, we like double the amount of people just sort of turned up mm. unexpectedly. Word had got out, and um, I mean, we were still to a large extent making it up as we went along. Mm. I remember our production office was just kind of this mouldy caravan with a sort of few bits of wet paper in it. You know, <laughs> sounds great. our steward schedules, you know, we hadn't, didn't even have a computer. Our steward schedules on this sort of wet bit of A3 paper that no one could read. Wow. And, um, but it was absolute chaos. Somehow word had got out and there was, there was, <laughs> there was shout outs on Radio 1 that this party was happening. And that party was us. Oh my God. So literally thousands and thousands turned up and they blocked a whole town's worth of roads and and at that point there was um there was, there was a huge china clay quarry mm. uh, on the roads above our festival site and when when the ships docked in plymouth uh, the uh, these massive lorries were sort of bumper to bumper between the port and plymouth and this, this china clay quarry sort of delivering clay and you know these ships cost something like a hundred thousand hours to dock so it's a major deal but but our festival our unexpected festival traffic sort of met with the traffic from this China clay quarry, which is a complete disaster. And then we had the regional police in kind of putting eight mile diversions in and wow. helicoptering in to sort of read us our rights and remind us that there's a six month prison sentence for this, that and the other. And, wow. and you know, whole we had our little festival and then we had a whole other festival which just sort of emerged around us. And I do remember a moment of just realising that it was absolutely hopeless that we we weren't in control of this thing. We might as well just sort of let go. <laughs> but it did, so, it did, it did freak us out. Yeah. And we took a year off. Yeah. And uh, that was 2006. 
and in that year off we decided to try our hand at a family festival you know, a few of us were starting to have kids right there were a few babies around this is not starry skies no this is way before starry skies and in fact we it went down as our most expensive crew party in history because at a time when no one was making any money and you know you'd be you'd hope for a bit of sort of cash at the end of the festival somehow you know divvying up whether yeah. there was any cash the left bar, the, the bar together yeah. you know we all had other jobs you know we were youth workers and carpet fitters and and the guys had the record shop and, you know we were just sort of making ends meet mm. but uh so in that year off, we decided, oh, well, let's let's try something new. Let's, let's sort of do something really laid back and see how it goes, get more families involved. And so we thought we'd set up a family festival, but we weren't very good at marketing. We'd never really done it, you know, on a, on a, in the context of a festival. We'd been promoters for sort of live club nights mm. for a while and, and, and done that in Birmingham for a bit, but we'd never really promoted a festival. And, and also we made the fatal mistake that our, although some of our peers started to have babies, that we, we weren't really kind of awash with families. <laughs> we couldn't sell this thing. We, we our, <laughs> our, our kind of scene, our peer group, hadn't had enough babies yet yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to support a family festival. We, we, we were too early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that, you know, that went, yeah, that went down as an expensive experiment. Yeah. Um, but then the next step was to re-establish Shambhala with mm-hmm. with with a bit more focus you know 2005 was was f- fun and wild and and scary and you know so we we decided that we needed to take it seriously if we were going to carry on so we our intention was to bounce back in 2007 on a new site yeah and the other part of that story was that the local authorities had said they'd give us a good reference as long as we left Sort of wow, as long as you got out of the county. <laughs> yes. Amazing. They, they were really keen to see us go. <laughs> you know, which is a little unfair. You know, we yeah. were a nice bunch, really. It was, yeah. a bit, it was a bit loud and it was the traffic issues, really. And, yeah. You know, that wasn't our fault. We'd, we'd actually tried to reach out to the... You tried to be as nice as the, possible. Uh, the clay quarry, in a, you know, beforehand in the planning, but they weren't interested in a bunch yeah. of folk in the field. But So in 2007, we'd found a new site in uh, Northamptonshire, which is absolutely miles away from our southwest route. roots. Yeah, and uh, we were so concerned about the amount of people that wanted to come after our last experience that we actually decided to not market it and kind of go underground to the extent of not having a website. Uh, but it completely backfired, and we hardly sold any tickets and nearly went bankrupt. <laughs> So, uh, wow. so we had this sort of desperate sort of couple of months before the festival where we were sort of, you know, doing cheap tickets for friends of friends of friends of friends of crew and wow. you know, everything in the book. I didn't know that. Just about pulled it off and survived. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of just sort of happened mm. since 2007 to 2019. We've Wow, it's been kind of a really long time, isn't it? Oh, we're sort of nearly 20 years in. It's like half of your lives, or the best part of your lives. Exactly half of our lives, yeah. Wow. And are you still all friends? Yeah, there's a there's a fantastic trust. Yeah. And you know, I mean, being being in being in business with people for twenty years is a challenge, and and it's amazing because we're we're still around the table, we're still enjoying it, we're still there's still yeah. trust. Yeah. 
And do you have you found that it's been easy? To, you sort of naturally inhabited certain roles as you've kind of evolved and developed the project. Um, or do you feel like you're still stepping on each other's toes in some way? Well, it kind of naturally, you know, we naturally fell into roles, I guess. Mm. Uh, and it, there's been a little bit of movement if people have had different aspirations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so within the family that is Shambhala um, Partners, what's your role? I've ended up with, uh, well, ended up in not quite the right sentence. Um, sentiment rather than sentence. Um, sound, sound resentful. No, I mean the 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 reality is that that you know your average people might think that organising a festival is sort of glamorous, but it's spreadsheets and hard work and risk mm. and health and safety. I mean, a lot of it is dull. Mm. Um, but that's 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 more than compensated for mm. by the endeavor and the vision and mm. the people who we work with and the wider community and, and the creativity and, you know, and the, and the chance that it's given us all to live our values. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's both sides. It's, I'm very grateful. I think we all are, mm. uh, for, for what has been the opportunity and the learning and the yeah. experience and the being part of it. But, you know, in terms of roles, we all have to shoulder sort of our, share of the dull stuff yeah and and mine is operations yeah so you know it's the it's the site planning and the health and safety and and the stuff that if you didn't didn't happen the festival wouldn't happen yeah well, quite literally um um something interesting that you just said which is about your you know it's been given the festival has given you the ability to live your passions um and I'm interested in in that particularly because this podcast is about kind of celebrating people who are living their passions while also trying to make a positive contribution to the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. And um, while the Shambhala Festival might have started off as a party amongst friends, over the years it's been an absolutely uh, amazing driving force within the festival scene within you know within the the wider context of festivals um and i know that you personally and you know your co-directors have been responsible for some really interesting innovations um and so i really wanted to sort of just explore some of those things like when Mm. when did the festival sort of shift from being party to being a place that you could really live into your values and and then how um yeah I guess how the challenges of that as well. It's not a straightforward thing to to um, to do to bring in sustainability and and some of the other things into a festival context. So yeah, if you could sort of share some of that, that would be amazing. So like like you say, we did we didn't set out to change the world. We were just having fun and being in community. And but there was a sense of you know we were all I recognise that we were all sort of decent. You know we were we were doing a party and we were doing it together. Mm. And doing it together was kind of the essence of it, and there was always a sense of fairness. But it did transition. I think it transitioned sort of slowly when you start to have family and and sort of get into your thirties. You, I guess it's maturity really, mm. sort of less about the party and more about kind of 
the future and kind of the people around you and family and so I think partly the demographic changes around you as well everyone's everyone's having families and growing up and I guess it just morphed into into representing who we are mm. uh, or rather not morphed it, it always has represented where we're at in life yeah so it is it is amazing to have a vehicle have a have an outlet have a way to express yourself mm. and it, it it's I mean we can't always um all the ideas that we come up with you know mm. it can't always be kind of lived through the festival but the, the essence of of our values or and a lot of creative ideas we have can can find their way into reality through the festival and and the environment particularly has been a passion of mine mm. and it it actually rather than thinking that that Shambhala is amazing although we we have found ourselves to be pioneering in this sense it feels like common sense the things we've done mm. and i just don't know why it's not why it's not normal mm. i mean if you've got the opportunity to have sort of 10 15000 people in a field and you can make decisions about how that happens yeah the social petri dish yeah but i mean not everyone is is minded that way most people are in business to make money and the good thing the good feeling i have about you know being a punter at shambhala um and i encourage anybody who hasn't ever been to shambhala to go to shambhala and have that experience because it really is quite um a heart opening and mind opening experience um you know you don't have to and you could do a lot of fun things at shambhala without ever really going towards the value piece and is it a kind of like a benign dictator uh, oh. rising from within, which <laughs> which want, which makes you, which excites you to try out these social experiments, or is it? Um, yeah, what is that? Is it? Is it kind of a realization that you've got this petri dish, literally? Well, we we can, we can make bold decisions. <laughs> Be honest. Yeah, we can make bold decisions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can get away with it because yeah. uh, we can. We're the legislators of this momentary kingdom. Yeah. Uh, you know that that is exciting, um, but it's also a responsibility. And, and really, what Shambhala feels to me like is um, it's just a way of offering something to the world. Mm. So, in a sense, this is this is our lives, mm. you know. And, and and I want my life to be full of generosity. I want you know I want I want to be part of this mm. as much as anyone else is part of it. And, and what I want to be part of is something which. He's generous and um, walks lightly on the earth and celebrates being alive and is respectful in the way that it deals with each other, you know, in the way that people deal with each other. And, and so, you know, the, the culture of Shambhala is, is proudly generous mm. and thoughtful, mm. you know, and wild and fun and all the rest of it. Mm. And I guess you touched on kind of, you know, the, the, you touched on the fact that we have been able to pioneer certain things for industry. Um, our journey has been largely around environmental initiatives and that's kind of led us to sort of more of a sort of cultural appreciation of, 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 of what the festival is. But I mean, in the early days, it was quite sort of technical in terms of how can we transition from diesel energy to renewable energy? You know, it's quite 
okay, there's a technical challenge. It's something which we feel we should do. So you went off. You stopped using, you stopped using diesel. Yeah, we we transitioned transitioned to 100 percent renewable energy. Wow. It took three years, and it was technically quite challenging because the that's amazing. Technology wasn't kind of there yet, really, mm. to to do it on the scale we were trying to do it. But yeah. um, so that was the first step, really. And then we started kind of dipping our toe in with with waste, and of course that involves more of a relationship with the audience. Yeah. So then we kind of got involved with with the psychology of how how people respond to messaging and you know, how they behave on site, whether they behave differently, and, and it's a minefield. You know, and, it, 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 and it, what, what that leads you to is the fact that you are dealing with sort of, it's, it's a sort of cultural issue. It's all about values as well as about, you know, you can put a bin in front of someone, but are they going to use it? Yeah. You know, and um, Especially when they've been drinking all afternoon. Perhaps. But actually, you know, drinking might be a factor, but probably more of a factor is what's the expectation in this culture? Yeah. You know, what, what you know, and that's about your peers and... But we realised that we could set the tone, that we could inspire people. That there are all sorts of tools you can use to um, kind of make it practically easy to communicate your expectations and what you are quite strongly as a festival. Yeah. Uh, but then also to inspire people to think about things and engage in conversations. So one of our uh, one of our more uh, risky initiatives, uh, well, risky in the sense of that we are an event and do need to sell tickets. Mm-hmm. People want to come. <laughs> And uh, so, anyway, we we felt that the conversation about the impact meat had on the environment was an important one, mm. and so we took meat and fish free off the men- meat and fish off the menu. Wow! Um, because we felt that was the most effective way to provoke that conversation. Wow! And it was quite effective at provoking conversation. Well, I mean, don't fuck with my beef. Yeah. Like, my, yeah. You know. Don't fuck with my burger. What was interesting was that people could hand, actually could mostly handle the idea. Some couldn't, but mostly handle the idea of not eating meat or fish for a few days. Yeah. But they couldn't handle the idea that we had taken that choice away from them. Well, it's it's a funny one. It really does get you. It treat it 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 you know it tickles that deep down funny bone of like it's my right. It's my right to choose, not yours. Yeah. You know, it's my my stomach, my mouth. Like I don't, I don't care if you're an environmentalist or whatever. Like, I could, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. It, even just chatting about it, I'm kind of like, I'm not not a big meat eater, but I do eat a little bit of meat, and I kind of try to go by the rules of less and better quality meat and try and eat more vegetables. It's kind mm. of my my approach. But um, yeah, there is something very visceral about someone taking that choice away from you. Mm. So how did? What was the kind of response? I mean, did you did people were okay with it ultimately? I mean, who? I mean, amongst you as a group of directors, were you all on the same page? Was it? Was it? Were you all signed up to it, or was it actually just tricky getting you got you know to agree? No, I mean, we were all absolutely behind it, uh, right. but we also represented society in that that there were meat eaters, there were very conscious meat eaters there mm. was a lifelong vegetarian a vegan so we were in your group of directors uh, well in our in our in our team in Shambhala team. team yeah but we were we were very we were very deliberate and careful to present this in a way that okay we don't have all the answers mm. 
but we know by taking this quite bold decision mm. that we will provoke conversation and that's what's important mm. that, that we, we should have this conversation mm. and we have become you know it's been a gradual process but we've become gradually more bold as we've learned how to deliver initiatives and and luckily the festival does sell out mm. and so that gives us a kind of an opportunity to to make decisions that that without without the kind of worry about affecting ticket sales yeah so it's not just trying to pull people to you it's it's yeah it's then that's quite a privileged place to be in some ways yeah i mean perhaps if 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 we were as a company focused on profit rather than purpose mm. then we would have been growing the festival for years and maybe we would have been 30 40 50,000 by now yeah you know, with the demand is outstripped amount of tickets available for for years and years and we sell out earlier and earlier but so that that gives us that does give us that luxury yeah so bringing in these new innovations about for the festival how you kind of work with food and waste and and energy and messaging and stuff is is obviously a really key aspect to to the festival um but i'm i'm particularly interested in how um how you guys as a, I guess, as an organisation, as a family, as a community, uh, organise and govern those decisions. Um, is it is it just one person kind of going? This is my new idea, or how does how does the sort of how does that work? I guess the reason why we have effectively been relentlessly reinventing how we do things and making things better. Is because we're all on board. I mean, we're we're a bunch of friends who are still talking to each other after twenty years, who all believe in the same thing. Essentially, mm. you know, we've got the same moral outlook. We're not greedy financially, so we are a purpose-led business. We still we, we are a business. We're not a charity. Mm. Uh, it has to work financially. In fact, we've always felt that there's a responsibility for us to be sort of seen as a successful business and a very professional operation because of the way traditionally uh, the industry might have viewed green festivals. Yeah. A bunch of hippies. Well, actually, we're a professional and successful outfit and we're pioneeringly pioneeringly green. So so listen up because, you know, this is is possible. Yeah. And also, who, you know... I, someone said the other day, I can't remember who it was, said that, you know, who would you rather had loads of money? Or even, you know, who would you rather had the, has the money? Would you rather people who don't give a shit have all the money? Mm. <laughs> or would you rather people who really give a shit have got some money? So I think this thing about green, green meaning not profitable or not, or not an economically stable in some way, is a really, really um, mm. powerful uh, lie to break through and to kind of prove to everybody that just because you care, it doesn't actually mean anything about whether you know how stable you are financially or how sort of serious you are about your your approach. Sure, and and we are atypical in the industry in terms of selling out reliably, and a great part of that is that our audience feels part of what this is and who we are 
you know, there's a sense of meaning in it and you're part of a community and people are nice to each other. I mean, imagine that. Mm. <laughs> people are more than nice to each other for four days. I mean, so we know what our audience want and they, they want they want a party. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're not naive to think that if, if it wasn't an amazing party and a sort of uh, a creative landscape mm. that people would still come just because they like being somewhere where people are nice to each other. Yeah. We need both. Yeah. Um, but people are looking for meaningful experiences. Yeah. You know, and, and the, you know, risk of state and the obvious, the idea of putting a stage up and having some food and, you know, actually the idea of a festival in a traditional sense doesn't really interest me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's working with culture and community and expressing ourselves and bringing something to the world. Yeah that is so inspiring about this journey. Mm. What does Shambhala actually mean? It's a nice story. The name Shambhala found us, really. Mm. We were trying to think about a name for the festival when it when it emerged that we actually sort of had a festival. A few years in, we thought, well, we actually need to call it something. And um, there were several inspirations. One was the word Shamba which is a Swahili word for field. And my understanding of the word is that rather than naming an object, like in the English language of field, Shamba was much more about the relationship with the field. I remember that if a school had a Shamba day, it would be about those kids going out into the forest and harvesting wood or mm. for the school fires, to, for the kitchens to cook on or, or harvesting corn or for the, again for the school kitchen. So it was a kind of evocative of that relationship, which which we liked, it's a bit more meaningful than just, you know, it's not a patch of grass, we're, we're on the land, we have a relationship with it, you know, this is nature. But also I think that Sid and I had been to a beach in Mexico called Shambhala. You think? So once the yeah, idea... I can't remember because it was that long ago or because it was that time of life? Well, maybe both. <laughs> I don't like to think how long ago it was that we started this festival now. But growing old with grace. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, so yeah, it started with Shamba and ended up with Shambhala. And a couple of years in, uh, we realised that there was this wonderful Tibetan myth or teaching metaphor. I think it has several different interpretations, but each of them speak to the idea of a place of enlightenment, either in this life or the next life, or a place where you know, the kings rule. I believe that some people are looking for it that it might be a physical place in the Himalaya or most people I think believe it's a metaphor in teachings um, but it's it's a beautiful idea and so we have done our very best to honour that idea that this is a place of enlightenment and that we're not pretending to be enlightened but we're honouring the idea that we're doing our absolute best to create a place where people are generous kind mm. creative open-minded inspired where moments of enlightenment yeah. might arrive i hope so <laughs> and there's also this kind of sh sort of slightly shambolic sort of uh yes <laughs> in the early days an absolute it did start as an absolute shambles <laughs> i mean it, it, it survived on on heart and spirit <laughs> and determination but yeah. yeah it was a total shambles yeah um, um most people are familiar with what a festival might be but this is not um, you know, V Festival or uh, Glastonbury. How would you sort of 
place yourselves within the how would you describe how Shambhala sits within the wider ecosystem of festivals we designed the festival so that so that in a way that we hope that everyone feels welcome families older people you know people come with babies teens 20 somethings um so obviously we can't provide every kind of entertainment that exists you know there, there's, there isn't oh. much pop music there's, there's not a massive rockers festival but but we we're we're a diverse we're a diverse creative festival and, and i suppose you'd put us in the alternative box i kind of resist that in a mm. way um it's a festival where on friday night you could expect to see 10,000 people dressed up as the opposite sex. Yeah, that, that started as... What's that all about? Well, it started as Fruity Friday. I mean, we noticed that men wanted to wear dresses, so we thought, okay, you know, we'll have Fruity Friday, but we found out there were some connotations we uh, weren't comfortable with, with that term in terms of where it came from. So it morphed into Freedom Friday, and, you know, it's just a honouring the sort of non-binary yeah um in society which is important yeah it's part of people feeling welcome yeah taking gender seriously and making sure that you you do right by everybody regardless of their of how they identify um is is a challenge how how's that shown up in in trying to organize a festival well whenever we're tackling a, a new idea or thinking about accessibility or what families need or whether we are truly promoting an, an experience where people feel welcome or whether people's experience whether they're a man woman or other is equal or positive it's usually the case that we don't expect that we know what we're doing mm. so we will invite someone to be part of our community who does mm -hmm. uh, so on the journey into a better understanding of uh, sexual identity mm. uh, and gender we invited someone from the queer community to come and talk to us to provide training to our team to screen all of our communications so that there wasn't anything which would be offensive to anyone so Amazing. yeah so we've I mean that's the opportunity that being part of such a big community affords that if we if 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 an idea comes up or we have feedback about a way we could be different or better then we can invite someone into the community that can teach us mm. and help us to kind of improve the festival mm. the Shambhala festival has been on a journey since since it's it's early days as a as a party uh into being a, a real front runner amongst the sort of festivals in terms of sustainability and putting um values right at the heart of a, a huge cultural event in which thousands of people each year get the chance to be inspired and come together and have an amazing time and i know that also you yourselves the guys you and others who are organizing have been on a journey as well in your own kind of uh learning understanding journey of discovery um and I know that you've had some contact with uh, Embercombe, which is an amazing place down in Devon. Um, could you talk to me a bit about 
your experience of Embercombe and some of the yeah the journey you've been on mm. in terms of that well a, a few years ago I went on a on a program actually called the journey mm. at Embercombe and it's a it's a dive into personal exploration and uh, it was life-changing for me and one of the stories that Mac who is the founder of Embercombe and the, takes the lead on this course shares with people is the children's fire. My understanding of it is that when the elders came together to decide what the founding principles of that society or culture would be, uh, that the first one was that no young should be negatively affected by a decision made by the council of chiefs for seven generations to come. And so being inspired by that story and having our team down at Embercombe um, for a team weekend and also hearing that story and it, it, it affecting them, um, inspiring the team, we arrived at a place where we adopted that principle as something uh, that we felt could define our decision-making, our outlook and our place in the world as an organisation. It was also something which we felt we could easily communicate with the audience. I, I personally particularly like the ceremony in it. Mm. I mean, it's about fire, so it's given me a sort of sense of 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 um, uh, ritual, I guess. So being able to gather people around a fire to talk about this as a principle and its intention and light a fire provides kind of a moment to uh, to be together around an intention, um, and we we have a have a fire in the centre of the festival which is also called the children's fire and it's lit with purpose uh, and I, there, there is I do believe that that the intention has huge bearing and power over the experience that we have to offer that for all these years as Shambhala has grown that that the essential spirit and generosity and intention that we've got something to offer that we can do this together has helped to define what it is. I mean, essentially, really, we have been stewards of something which exists in the world. And, but, but the relationship between us and that thing, that thing being Shambhala, has, has been our hard work and the decisions we've made. And, of course, we define the content, but it's also about the spirit and that intention. I think it's an absolutely beautiful idea. Um, and something which, like you say, being a fairly simple narrative, this idea of being able to have intention towards the young uh, of humans and all species for seven generations to come. It's such an alien idea in a world where everything is so short-term focused, where everyone's thinking about what they're going to do in a couple of hours' time or next week or their next holiday. Yeah. But the idea of actually inhabiting this sort of wider sense of space or responsibilities is something quite unusual about that. With the crew very early on, when there's only a handful of us on site, mm. uh, either consciously and, and with crew or, or sometimes quietly on my own, yeah. I will light the children's fire and offer my intention for what this experience can be mm. or will be when we have a lot more people on site towards the end of the build and all the managers and mm. the people who really are integral to the event and manage venues and core staff, there's maybe 80 of 100 of us 
at that point, we will gather and and light the fire together. And again, set that intention as a core group about what the festival will be. When the fire is lit, the public fire is lit, it's lit with that intention. Mm. And we've actually managed to um, take ash from the fire at Embercombe, uh, from a fire to which elders from peoples across the world have brought their ash with intention. Mm. Uh, I was given permission to take that ash and it lives in my wood burner at home. Mm, um, and I take it to the festival and I light each fire mm. with the ash, with that intention. And so uh, I also have some help, a wonderful woman called Annette, who, uh, who, I, who if I've forgotten the ash from the festival because I've left in a hurry, will always have taken some, you know, as a backup. <laughs> so more so It's of, a serious thing. Oh, yeah. It's more, a real part of the thing. It's a but, real part of the festival. I mean, it's an... It's an a, it's an it's an eccentricity of mine, I guess. Um, uh, but there is a lineage, yeah, of ash from fires at Embercombe, carrying the intentions of people from around the world, yeah. which has has taken a journey via my wood burner at home and into every fire mm. that we light with intention at Shambhala every year for a number of years, and then comes back home and lives in my burner. So I'm I'm. I'm working with that lineage and I'm working with the idea as well which, that we that that ceremony is not only the preserve of certain cultures it was a revelation to me to realize that we can create our own ceremonies and rituals based on an intention that we share and some actions that we put in place to demonstrate that intention and it felt like the world opened up in the sense that I have now a way to express, share, culture, intention through simple ceremony. Mm. You know, I don't have to be from a certain culture to have the right, an authentic right to ceremony. Mm. It's not to say that we should adopt other people's ceremonies. Yeah. Um, I believe not, unless we're invited into that. Um, by the people who are authentically holding that ceremony but we can certainly develop our own with good intention I love that idea I think there's something very very important in that because I think a lot of people have uh, a desire for connection and to find meaning or to to uncover the meaning in lots of different situations when in their lives but often things are kind of brushed over or rushed over or rushed through because there's no one providing the permission or the space to have that moment of experience that shared moment of experience with others to say shit ha that was a horrible thing um did you feel that that really hurt or equally wow what a beautiful moment should we just share that you know absolute magic of that whatever happened and i think what's what's special about festival and also about ceremony is that there's a sort of permission field that's created coming back to the idea of the shamba it's a field of space and meaning mm. where people can actually um engage in that deeper way with each other and with themselves um and and allow 
that ex experience a voice or a place or a sort of um, a moment to be realised rather than just stuck inside. It's sort of an externalising the the richness of the experience, the magic of what's going on for someone. Yeah, and I often find that even short moments, maybe of silence or thoughtfulness or togetherness, it it gives us as a team and a community who are holding Shambhala, this huge thing with thousands of people, it gives us a route. Mm. It gives us a moment to look around and see that we're really together on this. It gives us a route and it also kind of galvanizes that intention. Mm. You know, I, I, I find that quite profound. Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And um, I'm just thinking about whether that's, you know, we, some people uh, are maybe more ready than others to explore this idea of ceremony or language of ritual or for some people it's it's um an innate experience that is a desire and a kind of something that is thirsted for maybe and for others um it's part of their life but for other people it brings up fear and resistance and a sort of jokes of like fucking hippie or you know there's a sort of um a resistance to it because something underneath it um is maybe a bit raw and maybe is i don't know there's some do you know what i mean do, do you find that i mean it's not for everyone is it no i mean certain languages is challenging isn't it mm. i mean a reflection on this for me is the way as a festival we approach the meat and fish free mm. you know we were very careful with our language it was about being meat and fish free it wasn't about being vegan Mm. because language can often make people feel a certain way you know and it, you know if if we were to as a festival start suddenly talking about kind of childhood wounds or standing on the shoulders of ancestors or the sacred feminine you know then probably the majority of our audience will be thinking what the fuck are you on about you know mm. <laughs> fair enough um so our job really is to as far as we can because people just People are, are they're coming for a meaningful experience, but they're also coming for an absolute jolly. Mm. You know, so we can't get too serious on them. Uh, our, <laughs> our job is to kind of balance uh, providing an experience where we do things differently with less environmental impact mm. that is still positive, where they're having a fantastic time, where mm. we remember that, that, that we can exist in a place where people are profoundly joyful and kind to each other. Yeah. Um, and also perhaps provide opportunities for people to have a window into ceremony or the alternative in the same way that we hope that an inspiring talk about any topic will mm. spark something. And I guess we hope that, that people will go away from a few days with us at Shambhala with a sense of how wonderful it can to be alive, how wonderful it can be to be alive, to be with each other in a different way than we usually are in our daily lives in workplaces mm. and hopefully with a spark of something of a way of being different or a new idea or mm. yeah well that's a great service to be offering people mm. and i'm i for one as somebody who's been not recently but um in previous years 
I feel deeply grateful for those opportunities. Mm. It's something which um, can really make or break your summer, whether you actually get to go and have those times in carnivalesque freedom with your mm. best friends and, and new friends um, surrounded by music and celebration. Um, something I feel deeply grateful for and something that's opened my mind to so many new things. Um, I, I'm particularly interested by this idea of gratitude. Who are the people and experiences that you you hold dear and that you, you have a kind of deeper sense of, oh, wow. The, the thing that sprang, sprang to mind was, was not quite your question. Mm. Um, but sitting in a gorgeous tent at Shambhala on the floor with Tony Benn and Roy Bailey. Tony Benn speaking, Roy Bailey singing. It was probably one of the most magical moments of my Shambhala career. It was shortly before he died. So I feel very grateful uh, that we were able to invite him to Shambhala and that he came. In terms of gratitude, I, mean, I personally feel hugely grateful that I've been able to be part of this journey. Mm. Uh, it's It's been amazing to be involved with something which has so much community uh, that I can live my values through, uh, that, that somewhere for my crazy ideas to be accepted or rejected <laughs> at least somewhere for them to go in the first place um yeah and, and we're really working with gratitude this year actually i've dreamed for years of having a moment of togetherness at shambhala where literally everyone on the site is is together in the moment everybody the, the whole site now that, do that well that seemed feasible in the early days when i was thinking about it when we had one or two thousand people in the field but we never actually got round to it and the idea has been sort of festering um and now we've got to kind of 15 plus thousand it sort of seems like a sort of bonkers idea but we all talked about it this year and decided that well let's give it a go mm. um so for me the idea of of somehow having everyone at the festival across the festival silent for a minute at midday on Sunday for me that's about gratitude it's about creating a moment to say hey look look at what we've got here look at the experience we're having and you know, let's be grateful but actually I think we might we I don't know how we're going to present this idea I think the moment of silence shouldn't be prescribed well the silence is prescribed but I think we shouldn't prescribe what what that moment might be to someone. Maybe it ends up being gratitude or grief or celebration or you know, whatever, re reflection. Mm. So it's, it's an experiment. It's, 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 it's going to be a challenge. Mm. Let's get everyone to be quiet for a minute at exactly the same time across the festival site. Shh, everyone, shh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shh, no, no. And Turn then, your mini rig off. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Do you have a day for it? Is it a Sunday thing? Sunday midday. Sunday midday. One of the reasons I've why why I invited you on here to do this podcast was because I know how much you as an individual, but also you as part of a crew of incredible individuals putting on a festival, um, has offered to a wider 
uh, field of change and inspiration. I know for a fact that a lot of people who've been to the festival have changed their dietary habits. I know that other festivals in England, also in other parts of the world, have changed how they operate in order to have a smaller carbon footprint and be better by the people and by the planet. And so I guess one of the reasons of having you on here was to sort of share some of that inspiration um, and also give other people a kind of sense of how they might take those staring steps um, towards their passion. And, and in your case, you know, you were students having fun, building a family of, of music and art and culture. And it sort of dawned on you maybe um, that that came with responsibility. Um, what would you, having understood that responsibility over time, and now really sort of living into that as the years go by and kind of taking that on as a not as just an idea but as a central pillar to how you operate the Shambhala Music Festival together what would you like to share or what words of advice might you have to others who might be inspired by your journey and your story I would say not to get into that funny eddy of guilt that that all of us can fall into that sense of you know, the problems of the world are so overwhelming and I'm not doing enough I can't do enough it's just like well that's not going to help do what you can you know lean into it with courage when you can make the decisions or take the actions that you can but you know don't beat yourself up about it just get on with it and I would say find find people that can support you I've hugely benefited from going out and finding mentors, you know, people who are older than me with more experience, sometimes people that are younger than me with more experience or different experience, sometimes buddying, you know, can you set up an hour a month with someone that you have seen has got something that sparks you or inspires you or some experience you would like to gain an insight on, you know, can you be, can you be buddies, you spend an hour a month, just half an hour each with a sort of a specific thing that you would like to culture in each other. I think that we lack, often lack the ability to really find ourselves in situation, in nurturing situations and in situations, you know, with, with mentors or people that can support us. I think we often don't ask. So I would say ask, mm. you know, people often want to generously give their experience or share their experience or support you in some way reflecting a lot at the moment in life about the fact that I haven't even had a rite of passage from a you know, boy into a man and you know how, how how do we be the best that we can be well we can't be the best that we can be without reaching out for support mm. and do you feel like you're a man by this point <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> I'm, I'm really trying <laughs> yeah I mean once you any of us who have seriously delved into you know, our inner world and, and done that work that realises there's a lot to wade through whoever we are you know and uh, I mean it's it, it's it's rewarding and challenging mm. uh, I have got to a point where I've sort of forgiven myself for existing and being who I am <laughs> uh, and I think I'm taking steps towards sort of manhood and being being a king yeah. in my existence 
Um, are there any people who you feel that would be uh, good people to follow in your footsteps in terms of this podcast, the people who you might like me to talk to to celebrate their journey of what it's been to live by their passions and, and try and make a positive contribution to this world? Someone who's inspired me greatly is, a, is a, uh, an activist called Melinda Watson. Mm. She has passionately researched and shouted about plastic pollution for a decade. Uh, she's been involved in Shambhala's journey. She's helped us to eliminate single-use plastic. Uh, and we also run a company together now uh, which sells metal bottles, you know, message in a bottle. Yeah. And um, she's someone that, whose passion and determination um, is really admirable. Wow, I'd love to speak to her. So that will be my next guest. Chris, thank you so much for coming by. You're an inspiration to so many people and keep up the good work with Shambhala and uh, look forward to seeing you in the field. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to The New Navigators, hosted by me, Jamie Pike. If you like what you've heard, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future episodes. If you'd like more information about Shambhala Music Festival, please go to www.shambhalafestival.org. If you'd like to get in touch with me or find out more about the new navigators, please go to www.jamiepike.org. Till the next time, take care and fare thee well.